If you're here for the first time, my name is Mark Mullery. I serve as one of the elders here. And uh, this past Wednesday, my wife Leslie and I returned from uh, a trip to San Diego and Tokyo and uh, an opportunity to visit um, some of our uh, missionary friends there in Tokyo. And so I want to, before we go into the sermon, I want to just give you uh, an update on that part of the trip. Um, so Seda and Emma uh, Sakaguchi have been uh, nine years in Tokyo, and then our friend David has been there for the last year. David is sort of embedded uh, in uh, a Japanese church in Tokyo. Seda and Emma, this is so encouraging, um, when Leslie and I last visited in 2016, they were uh, serving as part of a, a, another church there in Tokyo in this uh, Toyosu Island where they, they live. But since then, they've begun this new community called Toyosu Community Church. So last Sunday, uh, here's a picture of the gathering on floor 37 of, uh, of this apartment. Um, and it was just a delight to be able to gather together on the Lord's Day and worship. Um, it was lively. You can see there's a bunch of kids and um, in, the, in the years uh, since this has been started, there have been several women, several of these ladies in this picture have come to faith in Christ, been baptized. And so I uh, just want to give you a couple highlights <coughs> excuse me, from, from the trip. Uh, starting with David, we, uh, Leslie and I were able to spend a day with David. We uh, uh, took a walk and, and had a chance to just catch up with him about his time there. His term ends at the end of October, and David's worked really hard at uh, learning Japanese, which is an extremely difficult language. Um, he's been serving in this local church. He's been reaching out to people uh, in uh, the area that, that he lives in. We had a chance to get together with David and the Sakaguchis. We went to a, a tea garden and uh, shared uh, some, some tea and had a nice walk together there. Leslie and I had several times together with the whole Sakaguchi family. We had a couple of meals. So here's a picture of uh, them. Jay is their oldest son, and then Kaya, Mia, and uh, Peter. And um, they are doing really well. Um, Jay is about to become, he's finishing up his junior year in high school, and so their family is, is uh, uh, moving into sort of that, that new stage uh, with teenagers and, and, and then a year away from Jay graduating. We also had the opportunity with Seda and Emma to celebrate their 19th anniversary. And so uh, we delighted to spend the evening at, this isn't actually the same restaurant, but we were at Bubba Gump's in Tokyo having shrimp. Um, I don't know, that's where they wanted to go. Um, uh, without a doubt, one of the highlights was... Um, uh, Kaya ha goes to a special school, and we got to be there on her sports day. And so here's Kaya with her pink gloves on, waving, and we got to watch her do her sports thing. And then the last morning we were there, a week ago, uh, or uh, just, just last Wednesday, Leslie was able to join with the ladies of the church as they have a Bible study. And so here's a picture. This is the Sakaguchi apartment. And uh, Leslie is there. And so the lady over on the right, uh, Yoko, she's uh, a member of the church, uh, and she's leading the Bible study. 
Uh, Emma is there and, and, and other ladies. And there was a lady there who was there for the first time. She'd been reached out to by one of the women of the church at, just at a, at a park. And um, this woman uh, had this experience just coming into this group of just being overwhelmed by the relationships. And she just was crying just to be able to be, she's not a believer, to be part of the group. And Emma said, every single woman that's come into that group, that's been their experience the first time there because they don't know the experience of those kinds of relationships. So, church, thank you for giving to RGC because apart from your giving, this doesn't happen. Thank you for your prayers. And please be encouraged about what we get to be a part of with David and with Seda and Emma in this wonderful kingdom that we were just singing about. And please keep praying uh, for the strength that God provides uh, for, uh, for our friends there and for an open door for the gospel. And especially, if you would, pray for men to come to saving faith in Christ. So there's a little update on that. And with that in mind, then, we're going to turn to the gospel of Mark. We've been in a series called uh, Follow Me, going through the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 10 this morning. And before we come to the text, I want to just make a connection. Who is this Jesus that Seda and Emma and David are proclaiming in Tokyo? If you want to know more about who Jesus is, if you don't know much about Christianity, if you're new to Christianity, there's really no better place to go to find out about Jesus than the Gospel of Mark. There are four Gospels, and the Gospel of Mark is the shortest and sort of most concise uh, uh, Gospel. And we learn there that Jesus comes as the Son of God to establish a new kingdom. And in chapters 9 and 10, we see his healing power, but we also hear him equipping and teaching what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be one of his Followers, And this passage, as we hear it in just a moment, we're going to see that Jesus zeroes in on two key things for what it means to be a follower of Christ. One is to beware the danger of a hard heart. The other is to behold the beauty of God's design for marriage. So it's Karis Vesegi Day at RGC, so Karis is going <laughs> to read the passage for us this morning. So Mark 10, 1 through 12. Thanks, Karis. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. I'm going to pray from Hebrews 13. O great God of peace, you are our good shepherd. You have raised Christ from the dead. And we ask now two things. We ask that you would equip us with everything good that we may do your will. Secondly, we ask that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, that through us you might receive glory through Jesus Christ and to him be glory forever. Amen. If you could ask Jesus one question, what would it be? If you had a chance to just ask him anything, what would you ask him? Maybe you'd ask something about the future, like when he's coming back or something like that. Or maybe you're in a moment in your life right now where you need to make a big decision and you'd ask for some guidance on that. Or maybe there's one of those big topics that you would love to just get some help with him in understanding why suffering or why hell or something like that. The Pharisees that we see in Mark chapter 10, they had that opportunity. They had an opportunity to stand in front of Jesus Christ and ask him a question. And what did they ask? They asked him this in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now just think about that. Of all the things they could have asked him, why would they ask this? It's kind of a weird question. It's, it's kind of like meeting with a financial advisor for the first time. Maybe you're a young person and you're starting to save for retirement. And the first thing you ask this financial planner is, how do we file for bankruptcy? <laughs> it's like you're just expecting disaster from the beginning, right? It's a, it's a weird question. But, but Mark helps us understand this wasn't a sincere question. This was a test. They were testing him, trying to trap him. And Jesus is going to tell them in just a moment that they have hard hearts. In doing this, though, it gives Jesus an opportunity to talk about issues that are always timely and always relevant to every culture, every time, and every place. Issues related to marriage and divorce and sexuality. These people lived in times when divorce was easy, especially for men, and when marriage and sex were treated in ways that fell far short of God's intention. In other words, they live in times not that different from our times. We live in a time when 
attitudes and practices related to marriage and sex fall far short of God's intention. And our times are no different than every time because every culture needs to hear Jesus' teaching about God's original intention and design for marriage. So Mark, in putting his gospel together probably in the mid-60s of the first century, probably writing to an audience in Rome, he puts this passage in front of us to help us get a hold of two things. We're going to zero in on two things today. First, the danger of hard hearts. We see that in the Pharisees. And second, the beauty of God's gift of marriage. So here we have a warning, something to avoid, hard hearts. And here we have a vision, something to embrace God's design for marriage. So come with me. We're going to just walk through this text in four steps to listen to what Jesus has to teach us about these things. So let's start in verse 1 with the setting. Here, verse 1 again. I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open and accessible and keep your eyes on the text. Verse 1, he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So there's, there's geographical movement going on there. Now, if you've been here for this series, if you understand what's going on in the Gospel of Mark, this is really important information. The, the Mount of Transfiguration, back in chapter 9, Jesus is there with... Uh, uh, three of his disciples, and they've moved from there back to the region of Capernaum and, and Galilee where most of his ministry has taken place. But now they've moved south and they're in Judea. What's in Judea? Well, Jerusalem is in Judea. And so they're moving near Jerusalem. This is significant because for a couple of reasons. One is it means Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and the cross we're going to see that triumphal entry in chapter 11. But, but it's also, if you, if you go back and read the earlier part of the gospel, you'll remember that the Jordan and this area of Judea, that's where John the Baptist was doing his ministry. He was calling people to repentance. Anybody remember where John is now? He's dead. Why? Because he called out King Herod. Why? for an illegal divorce and remarriage. Hmm. Wonder why the Pharisees are asking Jesus about that here. So Jesus is continuing his ministry of healing and teaching what it means to be a disciple. Remember back in chapter 8, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And all this teaching has to do with what it looks like to follow him. So that's sort of the setup for what's happening here today. And now in chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses, uh, excuse me, chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, we see the Pharisees come to him with a question. So look back at verse 2, please. The Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, some background. We need to 
Remember, we've seen these Pharisees before. Back in chapter 3, we're told that the Pharisees were conspiring with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. Why? For healing on the Sabbath. They wanted to kill him, and they'd been working on that plan for a long time. Back in chapter 8, they engaged Jesus a different time and argued with him, testing him, demanding a sign to prove for him. They wanted him to prove that, that, that he was the Son of God. In chapter 8, Jesus warns his disciples to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, this false teaching and this idolatry that they were involved in. So these Pharisees, we've seen them before, they're not humble worshipers or seekers they're not here with sincere questions they have hard hearts and they're here to test Jesus and so they ask this question is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife I want to ask you why is this a test why is this a test because everyone knew the answer to the question was yes Romans could do this Roman culture, Jewish people could do this in Jewish culture. Why is this a test? So, a little historical background. The situation in Rome, to whom uh, uh, Mark is, is, is probably writing as he's writing his gospel, in, 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 in the middle of the first century in Rome, there was a double standard between men and women. Men had all the power. Men could freely, married men could freely have sex with prostitutes, sex with slaves, and divorce for men was easy to come by. Women, on the other hand, were expected to remain faithful in their marriages and found divorce difficult, not impossible, but difficult to come by. The situation in Israel was similar in the sense that, that there was a double standard. Men and women didn't share power equally, but men were more restricted and, and married men were, were not, it was not approved of marri married men having sex with prostitutes or slaves. But again, divorce was easy to come by for married men. So was it lawful for a, a man to divorce his wife? Well, sure, everybody knew that. So how is this a test? Well, Jesus, as he so often does, he answers a question with a question. And he asks the question of, of these, these Pharisees, what did Moses command you? Now, their answer is important. We're going we're gonna to go back, and this is going to be a little bit of a deep dive into the Old Testament, because if you don't understand the background of how they're thinking about this, you won't be able to understand both their hard hearts or God's intention for marriage or the beauty of the gospel. So, so drop back with me into Deuteronomy chapter 24, because this is what they're quoting when they, when they talk about what... Moses permits. Deuteronomy 24, I'm going to read the first four verses. He says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes, because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent his wife away may not take her again to be his wife. 
after she's been defiled. For that's an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay, what in the world is that all about? What's going on here? Well, the idea is back in the time of Deuteronomy, back as Israel is being instituted as a nation, clearly divorce and remarriage were common. They were happening all the time. And so this little passage here is is a regulation. It's a limitation on current practices of divorce and remarriage. There's a restriction here. And the idea is if a man doesn't want to be married to his wife and he sends her away, gives her a piece of paper, a certificate of divorce, and she can go get married to somebody else. But if she ends up divorced again, she can't go back and remarry that first guy. Why? Well, probably a couple reasons. First, the certificate of of divorce is probably a protection for women to prove that she's actually legally divorced and not not committing adultery in, in marrying another person, another man. But second, the idea here is probably to protect a woman from being sort of passed around like a football from man to man and ending up with the original uh, man in the first place. Why was this divorce happening? It says if some indecency is found in her. A little bit ambiguous. Not sure exactly what that means. The NIV puts it this way. If, he no, if she no longer pleases him. If, he, if she's no longer pleasing to him. The idea here is probably this. It could be adultery, indecency, but if it was adultery, adultery was punishable by death. There was a clear prescription for that. So that's probably not what's happening here. Probably the idea is this, and this was taught in Jesus' time. The idea is this. If a husband gets tired of his wife, for as small a matter as she burns the lamb stew for dinner, this was literally being taught by rabbis, He could just simply trade her in for someone else. That was the inequality that was taking place between the sexes. And that was the lightness with which the marriage covenant was held. So when the Pharisees come and they say, hey, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to send away to divorce his wife? And he says, what did Moses command you? Again, we have to ask this question. How is this a test or a trap? Why were they asking this question, testing or trapping Jesus? It could be that they knew that Jesus had radical views about divorce. And if he really taught everybody what, uh, if everybody knew what he really believed about that, he'd, he'd be rejected by that. Probably, though, More likely, because they're in Judea, the same place where John the Baptist had been ministering and the same place where John the Baptist had been arrested and then beheaded, probably they're hoping that Jesus will say something like John said and end up arrested like John was arrested and maybe even killed like John was killed. So I want you to see what's happening here. When Jesus says, what did Moses command they go back to this restriction in Deuteronomy 24. Why do they do this? Because they have hard hearts. Slow down and consider. These are guys 
who want to support an institution that allows men to trade in their wives like cars and keep rolling over to different wives as, as long as they want to so that they can have pleasure and enjoyment and not invest in this marriage relationship. They're looking for loopholes in God's word, which is what Jesus is about to point out. So now, back to Mark chapter 10. And let's go to verse 5 and hear Jesus' public answer. Because remember, this isn't just Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees. There's a crowd here too. Hear what Jesus says in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of, hear this, your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Can you hear the claim of Scripture reaching all the way forward to these men's lives? Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When you grasp what's happening here, this is astonishing. See, Jesus isn't responding by approving of either Roman or Jewish approaches to marriage and sex. Instead, he does something extraordinary. He leapfrogs Deuteronomy 24 and goes all the way back somewhere else. Where does he go? Genesis 1 and 2. He goes back to first principles. He goes back to the beginning. He, uh, and, I, and in this, I want you to observe Jesus' understanding of Scripture. Jesus understands Genesis 1 and 2 to be relevant, to be historically accurate, and to be binding on people in his place in time and therefore on ours as well. And as he leapfrogs the restriction that Moses gives in Deuteronomy 24, he goes back to the intention that Moses gives inspired by the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and the end of Genesis chapter 2. And as he does so, he gives five affirmations of marriage. I want you to hear these affirmations. First, hear this. Jesus affirms, Jesus is not giving restrictions, he's giving intentions. He affirms that singleness and marriage are both good gifts from God. And you say, where do you get that from the text? And I say, I don't get it explicitly from the text. I get it from the speaker. Jesus doesn't say this. He lives this. Jesus Christ is the ultimate human being living in the image of God, and he lives his life as a single man. His existence affirms the goodness of singleness and that both singleness and the marriage that he's about to affirm are good gifts from God. Second affirmation. Marriage 
is part of the beauty of God's original creation. It's part of that very good at the end of day six in creation. Marriage existed before sin entered the world. And so Jesus is affirming the inherent goodness of marriage. That's the second affirmation. Third, Jesus is affirming marriage between one man and one woman. Look back at the text, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. We need to say this gently but clearly. Jesus affirms not many genders, not gender on a continuum, but two genders, male and female. Those who struggle with gender dysphoria want to say with compassion, God is here to meet and help, but this is God's design, male and female. And Jesus affirms marriage as monogamous and heterosexual, not polygamous and homosexual. And for those who struggle with same-sex attraction, we want to say this is a safe place to bring those struggles because we are all sinners who struggle. And yet we want to affirm God's design. Marriage between a man and a woman, monogamous, heterosexual. Fourth, Jesus affirms that marriage is for life. It's for life. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. There's no room here for casual divorce, for simply trading in one partner for another. Fifth, marriage is the union of two bodies and two lives. Verse 8. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So in God's mathematics in marriage, one plus one equals one. In other words, when people get married, as Joe and Maggie will be married this coming Saturday, God does a work of creation in that moment, creating a new unified person, if you will, one new flesh, male and female, two becoming one. In that unity, there is both a physical union and a spiritual union. It's the, it's the union of lives and bodies. And so here's a wonderful opportunity for us to affirm sex in church. Sex is a wonderful gift from God. Full stop. 
You can hold your applause. <laughs> it's invented by God. It's designed to be enjoyed inside the boundaries of marriage and as a beautiful gift nowhere else. So sex outside of marriage, any kind of sex outside of marriage, is a violation of God's good design. And marriage is a union not only of bodies, but of lives. And this union of lives takes priority over all other relationships. This is so important to understand. A man shall leave his father and mother, this primary unit, father, mother, children. A man shall leave that unit and be joined his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so when one marries, your relationship with your siblings, your parents, eventually your kids, your friends, every other relationship takes a back seat to your relationship with your spouse. So here's a wonderful opportunity in a church filled with young families. And isn't it exciting and wonderful to have so many kids here. Parents with young kids, I want to urge you. First, I want to honor and encourage and thank you. Raising kids is hard work. And thank you for the labor that you put into that. But I want to urge and admonish you this morning. You are husbands and wives before you are fathers and mothers. So parents, guard and nourish your marriages. And if you can't imagine how that can work in the situation that you're in right now, look to the God who can do anything for whom nothing is impossible and get some help in community. So the idea here is that a healthy marriage means building fences around this unique relationship to protect it. And then inside that, tearing down fences to promote intimacy and unity. As it happens, Tuesday, I get to celebrate my 41st anniversary with my dear bride, Leslie. So if I could allow me to just spend a few moments in praise of marriage. We have, she's downstairs working with the, the lions this morning, how, discipling the kids. We just spent two weeks traveling together. It was a delight. It was also intense. And the hotel room in Tokyo, um, some of you have closets that might be bigger than the, the room that we were just in. It was comfortable, but close quarters. And yet when we came home on Wednesday, Thursday evening, we went out and got some exercise together and had dinner together. And it occurred to me, having just been in close quarters for two weeks together, there's nothing we'd rather do than have a date and hang out and talk and catch up. Now, not, not everybody's wired the same way. And if you're not wired that way and you're married, that's just fine. But there's a unity that's come about in our relationship that is so sweet. And it, studying this text and having that evening together Thursday brought home to me the blessing of the shared lives that we have and the delight that we take in one another, which is mostly a joy. Sometimes it's scary because we've had this experience where we come downstairs and we're both wearing the same sweatshirt. 
because we went to the same Nats game and we got the same giveaway red sweatshirt. And that's a scary moment because there's no way we're walking out of the house dressed in the same sweatshirt. That's just not happening. Unity has its limits, all right? So, but, but I will tell you, too, that 41 almost years into it, we got married with this intention. And we had used some of this language when these two churches combined. We just said, look, unless we can bring more glory to Christ together, then as singles, we don't want to get married. So we, we want to trust we can be better together. And, and stewarding our lives together, stewarding our marriage together, serving Christ together, I believe we've been able to bring more glory to Christ together than we would have singly. And it's been a joy and a privilege to be able to, I hope, bring glory to God as a married couple. That's the fifth affirmation. It's the union of bodies and lives. Let me just add one more that isn't in the text, but is in the Bible. Marriage is the final reality for Christ and his people. There's a reason why there are no marriages in heaven, and that's because heaven is a marriage between Christ and his people. So whatever your marital status now, we'll all be married as the bride of Christ for eternity, and we look forward to that. So Jesus brings us back to first principles. Here is God's plan. Here is God's idea for marriage. The Pharisees are looking for loopholes and exceptions because they have hard hearts. But Jesus has come to offer, hear this, Jesus has come to offer a cure for hard hearts. And I know in a group like this, I know in a group like this, that there are plenty of people here who know the pain of marriage. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Maybe you've lived through the pain of parents divorcing. Maybe you wish to be married and you never have been or aren't. Maybe you are married and your marriage falls far short of what you hoped it might be. Wherever you find yourself this morning, Jesus Christ is here to offer hope. The new creation has begun and you're a part of it and there's hope in your future. And I want to preach the gospel to you through these terms of Mark 10 and Deuteronomy 24. I want you to hear what God is like in a way that I hope will floor you. So if you've got, just uh, can give me a little more attention, look back at Jeremiah 3, and I want you to hear what God is communicating to us about himself. Hear the gospel in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah speaking to Israel. He says, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? What's that? Quoting Deuteronomy 24, right? Would not the land be greatly polluted? And so God says, you have played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? What's the rule? No, there's no way for Israel to return to God. It's against the law. Can't happen. Now look at verse 12. 
Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. Oh, what a great God we serve. Oh, what a God of mercy. Jesus Christ is standing in front of hard-hearted Pharisees because God is merciful. Jesus Christ is on his way to the cross as proof that God is merciful. And for all who have sinned against God, God's mercy is greater than your sin. And for all who've been sinned against, for all who have pain associated with marriage, God is merciful. And God's mercy can enable you and empower you to turn away from unforgiveness and bitterness and hard-heartedness. Hear this. Jesus Christ has come on the scene with a cure for hard-heartedness. Jesus Christ has begun to make all things new. When he rose from the dead, the new creation began. And that good news and that power reaches to this auditorium and this congregation and your heart here today. So won't you open your heart up to him one more time? whether for the first time or the thousandth time, and receive his love and receive his mercy and receive his power to transform and forgive and make you new. That's the good news Jesus is bringing. One little thing to add, because I don't want anybody to get stuck on verses 11 and 12, and they can be they can be nettlesome and difficult. So last thing to say. Jesus' private answer. In verse 10, it says, In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Does that sound familiar? If you've been reading through this gospel, this keeps happening. Jesus says something in public, and the disciples are all there nodding. Yeah, right, I get that. Uh Just like us. And then as soon as they get a chance, they say, Hey, what did you really mean by that? Like, could you just tease that out a little more? Maybe just say it again. Like, so, so he does. So he says, look, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And she, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So Jesus is giving this radical standard to the disciples. It would be a rebuke to both Jewish culture as practiced at the time and Roman culture as practiced at the time. And it's a rebuke to our culture as practiced in our time as well. Jesus is affirming the intention of marriage to be for life. He's also doing something stunning. Jesus is leveling the playing field between men and women because he applies the same restriction to men and then to women. He's assuming that men and women are on equal uh, uh, grounds in his kingdom. And he's teaching us that in his new kingdom, men don't have all the power, but that men and women are to be treated equally and that marriage is intended to last a lifetime. Marriage isn't just a convenience for as long as it makes you happy and then you cash it in and move on. Now, what about divorce? On the face of it, this passage seems to, at the minimum, prevent any divorced person from ever remarrying. It's pretty clear. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And many Christians have taken 
and understood this passage and, and applied it broadly in, in life that way. However, others have understood that Jesus' answer here, the context matters. And here he's responding to a specific and hard-hearted question. And so we could rephrase the interaction like this. Question, can husbands keep trading in their wives when they're not satisfied with them anymore? Answer, a husband who wants to divorce his wife just so he can marry someone else is committing adultery, and so is a woman who's doing the same thing. Seen in this way, and in the light of the whole counsel of Scripture, churches like ours understand that divorce is never desirable, but sometimes necessary and permitted by God. If you want more information about that, we have a statement on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's available on our website through the bylaws. It's also available out at the Welcome Center. If you have questions about that, I want to encourage you to bring those questions to any of the elders, and we would be glad to speak with you about that. Oh, God is here urgently communicating with us this morning. Dear saints, beware the danger of hard hearts like the Pharisees. Questions we might ask. Are we looking in the Bible for loopholes to justify our ungodly desires? Are we asking, how much can I get away with before I'll get in trouble with God? Rather than, how can I please God? Can we see that it's possible to be near Jesus but not become a better person or a disciple? Can we see that it's possible to be close enough to Jesus to talk to him but never get to the place of unrestrained worship or unreserved obedience? Oh, let this passage examine our hearts. And can we see, dear ones, the beauty of Christ? Can we see the beauty of the one who's come to offer a cure for a hard heart? Can we see the glory of Jesus who never tested God and who passed every test, including all the tests that you and I have failed? Can we see that Jesus points us to God's beautiful intention for marriage and can we see that Jesus will one day ultimately fulfill that intention on the great day when Christ, as our bridegroom, comes for us, his bride, that we might be with him forever?